found in the book of Acts. And we'll be reading Acts chapter 6. Acts 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, And of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, we love your word. It is our comfort. And through it, we have wisdom. Or we might discern your will. Know how we might live in a manner that pleases you and think. In a manner that pleases you and and love and desire the things that you love. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would help us to understand it and that Not only will we understand it, but be transformed by it. Because we want to be true worshipers of you. We want to live for your glory. Lord, we recognize it's our tendency rather to foolishly live for the glory that comes from man or or for our own glory. And so, Father, we, we need help. And I pray that you would so open our eyes to behold you and your majesty Lord, to believe your promises so that, that we would, our, our actions, our thinking would be transformed by them. Lord, that we would all leave this uh, worship service 
with greater resolve, greater convictions, and hearts that are fixed upon you, who are resolved to live for you and no longer for ourselves. Use your word to accomplish this end. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the themes that we've continued to see throughout the book of Acts already is how frequently the church is faced with a multitude of various threats. And then we've seen how the church has responded to these various threats. The first threat that came upon the church we saw in chapter 4 when the apostles were called before the Sanhedrin and they were ordered to stop preaching Christ, which of course they responded to by refusing And then in chapter 5, the church faces an internal conflict this time. And that threat is the threat of hypocrisy, namely of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. And uh, the consequence of their hypocrisy was that God took their life. And then the apostles, right after that, are jailed again for preaching. And once they're jailed, an, an angel shows up and sets them free and then orders that they go and continue to preach some more. Which, of course, they're then put on trial again, and they refuse to stop preaching Christ as they had before. And because of this, they're flogged for their lack of compliance. And then in chapter 6, we're now introduced to a new threat that comes upon this fledgling church in Jerusalem. The threat is a division has arisen between the Hellenists, which were the Greek-speaking Jews, and the Hebrews. Divisiveness is a common attack that Satan loves to launch against the church. It can take many different forms. It can start in many different ways, through slander, through unwarranted accusations. Uh, It could be through bitterness that's caused because there's a, a, a person's offended. Um, you can run with assumptions that aren't true, uh, gossip. Um, it can be through pride as, as different people compete for various positions and wanting prominence. And division has ruined many churches throughout church history. It was Paul's primary concern in the church of Corinth when he said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Division was such an intense concern for Paul. It's what drove him to write this letter. And there was a lot of very intense emotions throughout the letter are expressed. Because he knew the threat. That there would be no divisions at all. And this concern carried over into his second letter that he wrote to them. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12... For I fear that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder when he comes. And remarkably, five of the fruits of the flesh that Paul lists in uh, Galatians chapter 5, when he lists the fruit of the flesh, have to do with divisiveness. Three of those fruits explicitly deal with divisiveness. Idolatry, sorcery, and he says enmity, strife, jealousy, all lead to divisiveness, fits of anger, and then, of course, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. 
So the, one of the prominent ways we show or express that we're walking in the flesh is by seeking to cause division amongst believers. And this is why Paul tells Titus that as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So this is not a small threat that's facing the church here in Jerusalem. It needed to be immediately dealt with, and it required great wisdom. And chapter 6 breaks down this crisis facing the church uh, by presenting, first of all, the problem that led to the establishment of deacons, the solution, which was the establishment of deacons, the result of establishing deacons, and then finally, a problem that proves one of the exemplary deacons who was selected. Let's look, first of all, at the problem that led to the establishment of deacons. Look at verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, now in these days, or sorry, Luke writes, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this tells us what the threat is, that it's a division that has arisen between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Again, the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. Most of them were Jews who had been born outside of Israel. Um, as you recall, the Jewish uh, peoples were dispersed throughout the world uh, centuries earlier. Uh, many of these had established synagogues throughout the Greek-speaking world. Some of them had then come to Jerusalem and become part of the church. Um, and you'll re also recall that um, the church was defined by remarkable generosity with members of the church actually selling their possessions to make sure every need of every person in the church was met. Now, the people who would have had the greatest needs within the church would have been the widows and the orphans. And of course, it's the widows who are being neglected here. And they would have had little means of providing for themselves. And so they were dependent upon this care by the church. And we're not told why the Hellenists were being neglected or to what extent, but the division that had taken place was a real threat. And it was a grave enough threat that the disciples recognized that immediate action needed to be taken to have that problem resolved. But the apostles also recognized that there was a, a more immediate or, I should say, an insidious threat than the obvious one of the division. And that was that they might be distracted from their primary responsibilities of prayer and preaching the word. Look at verse 2. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, the issue here isn't that the disciples were too important to be able to serve. We know that because Jesus made it very clear in John 12 that they were to follow his example of even washing one another's feet, which is one of the most humbling acts of service a person could have done. And so it wasn't that this act of serving tables was beneath the apostles, but rather that if they were to devote them their time to serving, they would be neglecting more important responsibilities, that of praying and preaching. As many of you know, uh, my family lives on a farm, and our oats that have been planted are almost ready for harvest. And 
it's theoretically, if I wanted to, I could decide to, to begin the harvest by just going out by hand and plucking, plucking the heads of grain uh, one by one with my hands. Now, if I were to do that, I wouldn't make very much progress. Most of the crop would end up getting lost. However, if I decided instead that I wanted to ask my father-in-law to come by with his combine, uh, the work could be done far more efficiently and effectively and without me having to do hardly any labor. And in fact, you would probably think that I was a fool if I had such a resource as a combine at my disposal and instead I choose to pluck heads of grain with my hands. And you'd be right. Especially if all I need to do is just to call upon a, a higher power like my father-in-law. And I bring that up because the most efficient way that we can use our time as Christians is to pray. Now, we as Americans, we, we tend to be very anxious about how we use our time. We want to make the best use of our time. We want to be efficient. We want to be effective. But ironically, one of the things that American Christians really struggle to put into practice is devoted time in prayer when it's actually prayer that will make our work far more efficient than anything else that we would do. Even many American pastors are not very devoted to prayer, but ironically, this is what the greatest pastors, the greatest theologians and missionaries throughout church history all have in common. If you have a favorite hero in Christianity, I am certain that one of the things that characterized their life and fruitfulness on account of their fruit, what caused their fruitfulness was their devotion to prayer. Adoniram Judson's fruitfulness was largely due to his devotion to prayer. He says on this point, Arrange thy affairs if possible, so that you can leisurely devote two or three hours every day, not merely to devotional exercises, but to the very act of secret prayer and communion with God. Be resolute in his cause. Make all practical sacrifices to maintain it. Consider that time is short and that business and company must not be allowed to rob you of your God. Robert Murray McShane once wrote, I ought to spend the best hours in communion with God. It is my noblest and most fruitful employment, and it is not to be thrust into a corner. The morning hours from six to eight are the most uninterrupted and should be thus employed. After tea is my best hour, and that should be solemnly dedicated to God. I also ought not to give up the good old habit of prayer before going to bed. But guard must be kept against falling asleep. When I awake in the night, I ought to rise and pray. A little time after breakfast might be given to intercession. Samuel Rutherford said that he rose at three in the morning to meet God in prayer. Joseph Aline, the well-known Puritan, rose at four o'clock and prayed until eight every day. He said if he heard other tradesmen plying their business before he was up, he would exclaim, Oh, how this shames me. Does not my master deserve more devotion than theirs? Charles Simeon also devoted the hours from four till eight to prayer. Martin Luther said, if I fail to spend two hours in prayer each morning, the devil gets the victory through the day. I have so much business, I cannot get on without spending three hours daily in prayer. And he also had the motto, he that prayed well has studied well. So prayer wasn't just something they did before meals 
or at church services when they were gathered with other Christians, it was daily. And it wasn't just daily. It was hours daily. And we shouldn't be surprised that their lives also were accompanied with great fruitfulness. Again, so many Christians try to do the work of ministry like plucking heads of grain with their hands. When if all they did was call upon the one who could actually produce the harvest, who had the power to produce the harvest, they would see the harvest actually being produced. But instead they want to labor in their own intensity rather than calling upon the God who provides us with all the supernatural help we need. And God has established prayer as one of the primary means by which we receive supernatural help. And that's why prayer must not be peripheral, but central in our lives, in our families, and in our ministry. Prayer needs to be central, not peripheral, in our families, in our lives, and in our ministries. We should be known as people who pray, who are devoted to prayer. We, Honestly, given that so much of the evangelical world prays so minimally, People should be shocked by how much the members of our church are devoted to prayer. And when we hear anecdotes of pastors devoting two to three hours of prayer, we should say, good, that's what I expect them to be doing. Right? And, and, and maybe even surprised that they're not spending more. And this, 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 this was such a burden to the apostles, they recognized they cannot be um, distracted from the responsibility to pray. Also, along with prayer, preaching is the other primary responsibility given to elders. Because this is the primary means by which elders are called to shepherd the flock of God and to oversee it. Paul says in Colossians 1.24 that he believed his primary responsibility was to make the word of God fully known. Colossians 1.24 and 26. This is why Paul repeatedly told Timothy to focus on the importance of preaching. He said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He told Titus that this was the responsibility of the elders, that they were to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. This is often overlooked, but when Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples, not only did he call them to go and to baptize, but having baptized people, they were to instruct those disciples in everything that he had commanded. There's a lot entailed in that. Paul told the Ephesian elders that his confidence in ministry was centered on his faithfulness to preach all of God's word. He said in Acts 20, 26, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He knew he could hold his head high with confidence that he had been faithful. Why? Because he had not, he had not failed to preach all that God had communicated. He had not neglected the preaching of the word of God to meet other Needs of the church. That's a lot of ground to cover. To preach the whole counsel of God. And the reality is though. That there's only so much time in the day. There's only so much time in the week. 
And, and the needs of the church are numerous. They're countless. And you guys know the needs that you have spiritually. Now, just consider those needs exponentially. And those are the needs that the elders need to be alert to and care about. There's so many things that the elders can devote their time to. And this is really too much for just a handful of people to address. And that's why God has designed the church not just to be uh, led by a few individuals, but God has called the church to be a body. He has designed the church to minister to one another, that each part would do its share in serving the body. It's not just the elders and the deacons who are called to serve, but each member is called to serve because the needs are so immense. But our greatest needs is to hear the word of God, to rightly understand it and understand how to apply it, and that our needs would be brought before the Lord in prayer. But the situation in Jerusalem required oversight that not just anybody could take on. Eminently qualified men need to be selected to, because the, the, the task of eliminating division that had emerged within the church was such a great threat. It needed to be given to the most trustworthy men possible. And this brings us to the solution of establishing deacons. The solution to the problem. The apostles called the church to pick out from among them seven men who had a good reputation, who were full of the Spirit and wisdom. I think each of these three qualifications are worthy of our further consideration. First of all, they're called to be men of good reputation. Literally, this means men who have a good witness. Again, that word that we're going to see again and again throughout the book of Acts, witness. This was the primary responsibility given to the apostles. And it was a key identification of believers as far as their responsibility. We're called to be witnesses to the testimony of Christ. And these men who are good witnesses are those who are credible witnesses. That is, people who are well spoken of, who have a good reputation. A good witness is a person whose life proves that they are trustworthy. They're not just people who say, oh yeah, you can trust me. You know you can trust them because they're faithful. They stick to their word. They do what they're, they say they're going to do. They make wise decisions. And just consider the impact this would have upon spiritual witnessing. If the person who is proclaiming to you truth is a person you eminently trust, because you've seen how they've lived, how they've acted, how they've conducted themselves in private and in public. You know that that's a person you're going to trust. And so when they start speaking, you're listening. Like, and, and I bring this up because this is one of those elements that's often divorced from our ideas of evangelism. We tend to think of evangelism simply as getting up and telling people what is the truth. Telling them that they're sinners, that they need to be saved and that Christ has provided a means of salvation. Good news. And they need to hear that. But we share that without, first of all, taking into consideration what our life should look like. Why should a person trust our witness of Christ if we undermine that witness throughout the week because we ourselves are unfaithful? 
We are unkind. We aren't, we aren't taking care of our families. We aren't being gracious. When our boss gives us responsibilities, we neglect it. When we aren't trustworthy with how we use our money. When we live and act in such a way that draws attention to ourselves. And if people aren't, if we don't prove ourselves to be trustworthy, why should people listen to us? And so before we even begin to speak about the gospel, we've already undermined the gospel. In fact, in preaching the gospel with a life that doesn't correspond to it, we've actually cut them off from a willingness to listen to the gospel. We have to be trustworthy people. And that's why these Men who were going to be entrusted with this responsibility had to be people who were a good witness. They also had to be men full of the Spirit. This term describes their godly character. To be full of the Spirit means you're guided by the Spirit in your decisions. Your your life is, is characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Somebody could look at you and if they were to ask you, well, what is this person like? They would say, that's a man who's loving and patient and kind and gentle, faithful, self-controlled. Their children would say that. Their wives would say that. Their in-laws would say that. That's what characterized these men. They also need to be men full of wisdom. This points to be the fact that they needed to be men that made good decisions. Biblically speaking, wisdom is the ability to discern God's will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans 12. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The wise person is the one who knows God's will and then does it. These men who would become the first deacons needed to have godly character because they were given an immense responsibility over the members of the church. And a a failure in this responsibility would lead to that division that had emerged to getting worse and and maybe even fracturing the church. It was such a grave threat, they needed to call on the most trustworthy people to deal with the threat. But verse 7 tells us that this decision to appoint the deacons did ameliorate that threat. It greatly helped. The church. Look at verse 7. And the result of establishing deacons. Not only was that threat quenched, it says the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. As the disciples stayed steadfast to their responsibilities, the apostles didn't give up preaching and prayer. And yet, at the same time, they made sure that they dealt with this real need within the church by appointing deacons. The result of that was that the church continued to grow. The assumption is, if they would have neglected preaching and praying to meet these practical needs, it wouldn't have. Or if they hadn't done something about the concern that had been brought before them, that also would have led to a lack of growth. And it also shows us that the church didn't need the apostles to be involved in everything. As much as what they needed was to be led by Christ and his word. What what I mean by saying that is that it wasn't the apostles that were important. 
It was what the apostles were appointed to do. Brothers and sisters, it's not so much that we need good leaders, but we need the Word of God to be explained and understood. What we need is Christ. All a good pastor does is simply point us to Christ and tell us what Christ has called us to do. The church doesn't necessarily need just great leaders. It needs faithful people. It needs the Word more than anything. And as the apostles devoted themselves to pray and preaching, the Word continued to increase to the extent that some priests became believers in Christ. And you'll recall that the priests were the subordinates of the Sanhedrin, those people who were opposed to the work of Christ in Jerusalem. And some of those subordinates to the church's greatest enemies were getting saved. And note that not just some former enemies were being saved, but many of them, and not just many, but a great many became obedient to the faith. Why? Because the apostles were faithful to their responsibility. However, despite the effective solution, the problems for the church don't end. Because right after this, the, the church is faced with another bout of persecution. And this time, one of the newly appointed deacons, Stephen, is the focus of the persecution. This brings us to the problem that proves that Stephen was an exemplary deacon. Look at verse 8. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And note that Stephen here is described as a man full of grace and power. And previously he was described in verse 5 as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Not to mention being qualified as a deacon in verse 3 as having a good reputation, being full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now that's a lot of ways to describe this man's reputation. So this is a pretty strong spiritual resume. But it wasn't just words on a paper. Like those of you who work in, the, in any sort of job and who, who receive resumes or send out resumes know that often what's put on a resume could just be words. Well, these weren't just words for Stephen. And we know that because it's proven in how he responds to the persecution that faces him. As Stephen was ministering to the people, he was opposed by Jews from various nations who composed what was called the synagogue of the freedmen. And these were Jews who had been taken as slaves to Rome. They, they were Jews who were previously enslaved. And while they were slaves in Rome, they had earned their freedom one way or another. That's what freedmen means. And they probably lived in Rome for quite a long time or some of these other areas. But in uh, AD 19, Emperor Tiberius expelled all of the Jews out of Rome because of the efforts they were making at conversion. Not wanting their religion to spread, he kicked all the Jews out of the city and he sent them to wherever they might go. And many of those Jews ended up back in Jerusalem, as you might expect, and they established this synagogue of the freedmen. And therefore, uh, they were likely the chief opponents of Stephen because they felt like that religion that they had been persecuted for, even being kicked out of Rome, was being undermined by Stephen's preaching. 
They had, they, had, they had lost much on account of their religion. And here is some upstart undermining the very religion that they had suffered for. And so they were concerned about him. It says that these men rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which, which, with which he was speaking. And, and note the connection there. Not only, Stephen spoke with wisdom in the spirit because he was a man who walked in the spirit and was a man who had already been conducting his life in wisdom. Right? We need to recognize there can't be a disconnect from just the times when we're up front with people or we're serving the church in some way or we're bearing some responsibility. There can't be a disconnection from those moments from what we're like at home when we're not... Uh, in a, under a sense of responsibility. But those men who, or, or women who are going to be most effective in their ministry are those who are consistent in their walk with God in every area of their life. They don't isolate their life into work, uh, ministry, home, but they see all of their life as an expression of what they worship. And it, with that consistency comes power. And they, these people could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Because it wasn't just a show, it was real. It defined his life. And it's important to point out that this group of freedmen included men from Cilicia. You'll notice that. Well, the most prominent city in Cilicia was Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, no doubt, was one of the men who was disputing with Stephen here. And who had been humbled, maybe even humiliated by the arguments, by the wisdom that Stephen was disputing him with. And this would explain Saul's zeal to have Stephen killed in Acts 8.1. Not being able to best Stephen through arguments, the men try underhanded tactics now. They, they secretly instigate men to lie about what he's saying. Saying he spoke against Moses and spoke against God. Secondly, they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, causing a virtual riot. And these, the people seize him and they bring him back to that same corrupt council that already in the book of Acts we've seen has acted as an enemy against the church. And during this trial... They stir up false witnesses against Stephen. Look at verse 13. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now that's a very similar description of what happened to Christ. You might recall in Matthew 26, 59, you can flip there if you like, Matthew 26, 59 says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, who came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is what is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. Priest's opposition, the false witnesses, the lies and the trial, 
The fact that this trial is before the same group of men, the Sanhedrin. The parallels are purposeful. Because it's showing us that that, that Stephen is following Christ. He's a real Christ follower. He's bearing witness to Christ. So this isn't a misfortune. It's a heavenly planned persecution. We need to see that. It's not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's a triumph. The good witness, right? He's a good witness, is bearing witness, not just to the gospel, but to the fact that his life has been transformed by the gospel. In fact, Jesus said this is exactly what his followers should expect when they have a life that follows him. You want to follow Christ? Expect the treatment Christ got. He said they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. It's not a problem. This is what we live for. When we were born again, our lives were transformed. We live for Christ. To follow Christ. To be like Christ. That's our goal. If you're a member of this church, you've acknowledged that it's your goal to want to be Christ-like. This is what it looks like. So it's not a problem. It's what, he, it's what he should have expected. He's there to bear witness, and he does. But we have to be honest. Having to bear witness for Christ in such situations is scary. And if and when it happens to any of us, it will be probably terrifying. Especially not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Not knowing if it's going to end in our death or it's just going to end in our humiliation. Not knowing how we're going to respond. And Jesus knows that. That's why he said this. And he knows that because he's been there. Stephen is only following Christ's example. Christ knows what it's like to be in that situation. That's why he tells his church this in Acts 21. You don't need to be anxious. You don't have to prepare yourself beforehand how you're going to respond. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Because I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This is exactly what God did for Stephen. And we're supposed to see that. This isn't an accident. This is planned. Christ is behind it. But he's giving grace to Stephen in the moment to be faithful. And just as he promised this to Stephen in Luke 21, and it proved to be true in Acts 6 and 7 with Stephen, Christ continued to prove prove the trustworthiness of this promise throughout church history. And there are numerous examples we could look to. But I particularly wanted to find an example that had to deal with a deacon who was called before trial. In the 4th century, a man 
by the name of Timothy, was a deacon in Mauritania. And he had recently been married to his wife, Mara. They'd been married for three weeks. When Diocletian sent out a decree, an empire-wide persecution of the Christians, particularly if anybody was found to be with Scripture, that that Scripture needed to be um, stripped of them and burned. And when Timothy was heard to have been entrusted with a copy of the Scriptures, Arianus, the governor of Mauritania, commanded him to give up this Scripture so that it could be burnt. To which Timothy answered, Even if I had children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than to part with the Word of God. And the governor, not appreciating this reply, ordered that Timothy's eyes needed to be put out with hot irons and said, the books shall at least be useful for you because you will not be able to see to read them anymore. And Timothy's patience under this torture was so great, the governor grew even more exasperated with him. And so he ordered him to be hung up by his feet and a weight tied around his neck and a, and a gag to be put in his mouth. And it was during... At this moment that his wife, who was there, began to plead with Timothy to recant for her sake. And when the gag was then taken out of Timothy's mouth, instead of consenting to his wife's entreaties, he rebuked her for her inconstancy and declared his resolution of dying for the faith if necessary. And seeing her husband's resolution and confidence, this turned her and she resolved to imitate her husband's courage and faithfulness, and to accompany him to glory. And the happy, newly married couple was crucified together in the year A.D. 304 because they had a greater value for the Word of God than for their own lives. Well, how did Stephen respond to the threat that was facing him? It says in verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. Now, first of all, we need to note that this isn't just some subjective description of Stephen. Because it says, notice, every person on the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. It wasn't just one or two people. The whole council saw it. It was objective. Secondly, this, this doesn't mean that he looked like a cute little baby with wings, as many angels are often depicted fancifully. Biblical angels were frightening beings. And typical response to seeing an angel wasn't awe, but awe, fear and trembling. Just think of the times when angels came to people, how they responded. When angels were, would come to a person, they would have inherent authority as ambassadors of God. And they would be steadfast and resolute. People didn't question when angels spoke. They acted or they regretted not doing what the angel told them to do. And these, these angels would simply convey information, give orders, and people better accept what they say or face the consequences. Just consider Zechariah versus Mary. When they saw the angel Gabriel before the birth of Christ. Or Lot. 
versus his wife. So having a face like an angel probably describes the resolution and confidence on Stephen's face. He was ready to die. There was no shame. There was confidence. He knew, in a sense, I believe, that he had been appointed to this. He was following Christ. This was planned. He, he had as much confidence as Patrick Mahomes did when he's at the Super Bowl. This is where he wanted to be. This is where he's supposed to be. This is how. This is the goal. This is the peak of what we're called to. He wasn't trembling. He was confident. And he wasn't going to compromise his convictions despite the threats and ferocity of his opponents. So it does ask, beg this question for us. How can we respond with such confidence as a church when we face the various threats that are going to come upon us, that do come upon us? The internal threats like divisiveness or false teaching or whatever might creep into the church and the external threats, persecution, suffering. How can we respond to the threats the way Stephen did and the way the early church did? That our church would last and be a light that shines in the midst of trouble rather than crumbling in the midst of trouble. Well, I think quite simply we need to do what the early church did. We need to devote ourselves to the same things they devoted themselves to. And then what's the pattern that we've seen in Acts? They devoted themselves to gathering together to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. They gathered together regularly, devoted themselves to the Word of God, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Brothers and sisters, it's not an accident that they remained faithful. They made wise decisions. The church continued to grow. The Word of God began to increase. It wasn't an accident. When the members of the church devote themselves to these things not only does it cause the Word of God to increase, it allows them to remain faithful. This is how you remain faithful. If you're not faithful to these things now, if you're not devoted to these things now, you should have absolutely no confidence that you will remain steadfast when your faith is tried. In fact, you should assume the opposite. If you don't want to deny Christ, when your life is at stake, you need to begin to devote yourselves to the things that will strengthen you for that time. So this, this isn't just, this is real. Brothers and sisters, persecution is real. It's not fanciful. I know it may, it may seem fanciful to us because we live in America. But if you look at church history, certainly if you look at the Bible, this is normative. And more than likely, given the direction our country is going, given the way the world is going, the threats of persecution are going to be more and more real to us. We can't wait until we're put on trial to devote ourselves to the most important things. We need to... Not just show up to church, but we need to be devoted to these things, seeking to apply whatever we hear. And like the deacons, seeking to be good witnesses. 
Not just that tell the truth to our coworkers, that just evangelize to strangers, but who consistently live in a way that shows that they walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That, that every decision that we make, people would say that is a godly, God-honoring decision. So that as we witness to the truth, our lives will also bear witness to the truth. And so that the Word of God will increase, even when we are suffering, even when we are threatened. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be fools who assume that we will be able to stand fast when the heat gets turned up. Lord, we recognize we struggle to stand fast when just life gets stressful because we're trying to cook a meal and there's multiple distractions and the food doesn't turn out the way we want. Lord, when our computer runs slow, when the thing that we ordered arrives and it, and it doesn't work properly. Father, we are, when we're tested, we often are proven to be less than steadfast, less than courageous, less than joyful in every circumstance. Father, we, we really need great grace as a church. We confess that we have great immaturity. We don't want to be children that believe and imagine themselves to be strong when in fact they're just believing a fantasy. We want to be men, adults, women of courage, women of constancy, like Timothy, like Mara, like Stephen. We pray that you would pour out your grace to make us to be such a church. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.